You are listening to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand, this week. Under the Skin from Luminary, by the way. <laughs> They're the people that keep this thing going. Without, lu- without Luminary, there is no bloody podcast. Or there might be, but it won't be very reliable because it's, it's not going to be well organised. It's not going to be properly financed. Bear, you are not eating those cupcakes. Well done, Demire. It's Demire's birthday. Let's register that. Maybe one day in the future, you'll, you won't be 24 anymore. I mean, that's a certainty, in fact. And... And you'll listen back to this and think, oh my God, I was 24 and I thought I was old. So this is an episode of Under Skin with uh, Seth Abramson. Seth is an American professor, attorney, author and political com- columnist. At one point in the podcast, he listed all the things he'd done for a job. And I, I nearly threw the computer out the window. Ridiculous how many things he's achieved mastery of. He's written loads of books, Proof of Corruption, Bribery, Impeachment and Pandemic in the Age of Trump, released this year. Uh, proof of collusion how trump betrayed america in 2018 he's certainly no fan of trump but this conversation we had where i was very much waving the flag for well what you know tough on trump tough on the causes of trump you know saying what's the point and in effect we got to the point where we were saying that you could take trump out of this whole problem and the problem would be almost the same what's the point of fetishizing trump and i feel like that was one of the the Rare moments where I came across as the cleverest bloke in the chat. What do you think? Jen? Yeah. You don't believe that. <laughs> Demaya? Yeah. I thought it was all great. All great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Do you think that the subtext of my podcast <laughs> is, I think I'm cleverer than you in spite of your job? Me? <laughs> Oh, well, I'll tell you now I think I'm cleverer than you because of your job. <laughs> but, but like... Uh, because it is. No, it's not. I'm actually here to learn. And we're thinking of creating courses around Under the Skin. Sort of Under the Skin University, as it were. <laughs> Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it, actually, when you think of skin like that. Um, I'm sorry about that. That was unpleasant. Anyway, let's get some comments uh, from Kate Nelson before we crack on with Seth Abramson, who is charming, informative, brilliant and bright. Mischievous fantastic wonderful episode i'm thrilled with it now here's some comments from kate nelson franchique s franchique underscore jen did you just then <laughs> tug a great lot of phlegm down your throat i heard a real whooshing <laughs> sound i heard a <laughs> I like, shivered. you shivered shivered from sheer phlegm what was discovered Stop lately? Stop redirecting the phlegm your phlegm is i'm not redirecting the phlegm <laughs> i got going. no phlegm to redirect listen listen to this back there was no phlegm. It was a. That's just natural sweet <laughs> swallowing. That's just sweet lady swallow singing her song, singing her siren song. Uh, look, Jen's got a phlegm problem. No. Yes, you were diagnosed by an acupuncturist as being phlegmy. That acupuncturist has been under a lot of pressure. It was a misdiagnosis. She was kind enough to admit that. Excuse me, I've just got some phlegm. <laughs> Some phlegm size of tennis ball gathering accumulated in the gutters of me gob. Sorry about that. Uh, Francique underscore S. Enjoyed it. You bring in so much to this community, man. Thanks, Francique. Yapsicles. Loved it. Your episodes always make me think in a different way. Gareth Evans. Kept it real. That was refreshing. If you want to follow me on Twitter, 
Instagram, Ticker to Talk, any of those things, then uh, of course do. But more importantly, sign up for the email on uh, russellbrand.com and get information on live performances like my shows at the London Palladium, the in Reading, Oxford, socially distant, safe performances. If they're cancelled, you'll obviously get your money back, but these should be wicked gigs. November the 8th, Oxford. November the 12th, Reading. November the 15th, a place called Londo. <laughs> Who typed this out? Django! I know. You were so busy sluicing down your surplus saliva. I was getting rid of palladium and I went too far. <laughs> Why were you getting rid of palladium? So it would all fit on one page so you didn't have to flip over it. Well, you failed miserably. And what you've done <laughs> is you've announced a gig on the 15th of November in a place called Londo. What don't even exist? Go to russellbrand.com for your tickets and more accurate geographical information about the cities in which these events will be taking place. Uh, check out my YouTube channel for those spiritual videos. Did a good one today. Uh, it was a uh, video on... Panic. Panic! <laughs> don't panic. Don't panic. Or panic less. Yes. I'm not saying don't panic. Panic if you want, but just do less of it. All right. So have a listen to Seth Abramson. I must say, I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful yeah. route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Seth Thank you so much for coming on Under the Skin. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Already the notes that you sent us have forced me to enter into a, a, an educational territory that I didn't anticipate. Because, of course, when we were talking about you coming on, you said, what does Russell want to talk about? Meta-journalism, meta-modernism, U.S. domestic policy, U.S. foreign policy. And um, I thought, wow, I'm going to have to really concentrate now. Yeah, I've gotten into a lot of different things over the years. What, uh, given that you've got your new uh, book out, Proof of Corruption or Conspiracy? Uh, corruption, Proof of Conspiracy was 2019. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, like, w- what, do you, what do you most want to talk about? Because like, like a lot of like the people who turned me on to you were like, oh, you've got to check out this guy, Seth Abramson. He's amazing on uh, like the sort of collusion with the Russians and analysis of the Trump presidency. And what is it that's causing you to have this furrowed brow, this look of intensity, this sense of purpose that emanates from your face here on the screen? What, what is it, Seth? What's, what's troubling you? Well, I think there are a lot of people who are talking about Trump's domestic policy, his foreign policy, what a danger he is to the United States and to the world. The the question that I've had for several years now and that I've been implicitly asking in the proof books is what is it about our current uh, our current journalistic landscape that is enabling Donald Trump to be as effective as he has been at corrupting US democracy, our institutions, our rule of law? Because there's something more than just his native skill set, which in many respects is actually kind of limited. There's something that is receptive in American culture that is allowing the the poison that I think he represents institutionally, morally, and historically to spread more quickly than it otherwise would. And that's why I became a meta-journalist, is I think that conventional journalism might be what's enabling Donald Trump at this point. 
Will you tell us what meta-journalism means, even though I have personally looked it up in preparation for this interview? Sure. So, you know, a lot of people think that there is too little great investigative journalism right now. They talk about the prevalence of fake news uh, and fake news websites. And of course, that is a problem, though it's actually kind of separate from the conversation of journalism because fake news isn't really part of the journalism conversation at all. The theory of meta-journalism, which is a meta-modern subgenre of journalism, is that there's actually too much great investigative reporting right now for any one person to consume even a tiny fraction of it. So what you need is you need a meta-journalist to compile, uh, curate, and connect thousands of stories from around the world going back decades that tell us what is happening in our present moment by giving us a historical sense, a much broader sense of the present. And when you have that broader sense of the present, you get a better sense of the through line into the future that we can anticipate based on today's events. Right now, with our corporate media culture, the danger is that every breaking news item is a news product that is being sold for about seven or eight minutes uh, by a cable news network or by some corporate media entity. And the result is that we have no horizontal sense of all the other reporting happening on the same subjects around the world. And we don't have a historical sense of how many of these topics have been reported on previously. We're, we're essentially, we have tunnel vision as news consumers. And that is very much to Donald Trump's benefit in 2020. Isn't the, uh, the, the template that you describe as constituting meta-journalism itself problematic because of the impossibility of any kind of objectivity when creating these narratives, when curating these perspectives, aren't they going to be sort of subject to the same scepticism uh, that would be applied to, e.g., the mainstream media in the kind of uh, attitude towards uh, broadcast news that Trump himself espouses as the, one of the main uh, propagators of the sort of fake, night, fake news idea? Well, one of the reasons that I say that meta-journalism is a meta-modern subgenre of journalism is because the foundational metaphor of meta-journalism is the same as the foundational metaphor for meta-modernism, which is the dominant cultural paradigm of the internet age. And that foundational metaphor is the network. Why is that important? It's important because in a network, the more data points you have, the stronger the network becomes, and the less likely that the corruption of any one data point would destroy the entirety of the network. So what I'm doing as a meta-journalist is I'm trying to curate thousands, literally. I mean, the proof series has 12,000 viewable citations among the three books and their 1,500 pages. The idea is that if any one node in that network were found to be weak in some way, it wouldn't change the congregation of meta-narratives that the network represents in the same way, frankly, that the internet represents a congregation of, uh, of meta-narratives. So yes, th there's always a risk of subjectivity in curation. I don't want to pretend otherwise. But the larger the network you create, the less the risk that it gets infected by subjectivity. Would you say that there is a a discrete and particular problem to the presidency of Trump that is separate from the administrations that preceded it when it comes to the sort of geopolitical and macro issues, i.e. American for foreign policy and even domestic policy. I think what a lot of people that are disenfranchised feel is that Trump is just a more obvious exaggeration of the type of ideas and beliefs that have dominated American politics, perhaps always, but certainly, you know, post-Clinton. 
Well, I think it's true that Donald Trump is a consummate politician in the sense that he believes that every action he takes as a politician is fundamentally a performance. And I think that's infected politics for a very long time. But with Donald Trump, the sole audience for the performance is actually himself. And I don't want to get into psychoanalysis you know, about him being a malignant narcissist or whatever it might be. I think the greater issue is that separate from his solipsism, separate from the fact that he treats everything as a performance, even more than the conventional uh, politician does. I think there's the fact that Donald Trump wants to be ubiquitous in our lives as Americans, and frankly, globally, in the same way that our cell phones or our tablets or the internet is ubiquitous. Uh, he wants to be with us at every moment. He wants us to be thinking about him at all times. And then that, that occurs, that phenomenon, in conjunction with our corporate media structure currently rewarding someone who is putting out startling news products every few minutes. Uh, so it's a perfect or perhaps an imperfect, it's an unholy marriage of a politician who is the extreme of every politician we've seen added to some pathological components possibly. And then frankly, the pathologies of our journalism, which reward the particular pathologies of Donald Trump. Because given um, that w with your description of meta journalism, you talked about giving us a reliable perspective because the number of data points means that you're presenting us with something that's somewhat reliable and cohesive. You, when you look at the presidency of George W. Bush, say compared to Trump, like it's when you, if you look at like even like documentaries about Bush presidency, Iraq war, the kind of stories, the kind of description, the kind of attitude that uh, the media had to George W. Bush is certainly comparable to how Trump is currently regarded. Well, you certainly had journalists like Janet Miller at the New York Times who were being very credulous about the stories Americans were being told about weapons of mass destruction uh, in Iraq. But I do think that that the connection we can draw between now and then is that, of course, it turned out that there were no weapons of mass destruction. That fact, that future revelation was actually knowable very early on if you had had someone, let's say a meta-journalist, creating an epic account of weapons inspections in Iraq using hundreds and hundreds of data points from around the world, establishing what had been found by international agencies, international reporters, domestic agencies in the US, domestic reporters. I think we would have seen that that's where the narrative was heading much earlier. But was, what was happening is each new shiny object was being chased by media and certain figures had an outsized voice. Janet Miller was a good example, but there were certainly others in media. So I think the problems we're seeing now are, are the worst we've ever seen them. I'm not suggesting they've just arisen for the first time. And I think that meta-journalism can offer a solution to it, but not simply because it's Donald Trump, but because we're in the digital age and we have access to thousands of data points. We can do this sort of research. We can curate items in this way because otherwise what we end up with is journalists who are writing stories. They're incredibly competent. They're incredibly dedicated, but they haven't read the entirety of the archive on the subjects that they're working with. And so they're either repeating information that others have offered or they're not really adding to the story or much more commonly, they're not linking up their own revelations with the revelations that have already come out. And as Americans, we've probably forgotten because they were you know, more than 10 minutes ago. See, from my perspective as an English person and the way that I consume news, 
it, and, and uh, clearly this can't be your point, and I'm, I'm, I, you'll explain to me, I'm sure, that it seems that Donald Trump is subject to a great deal of critical media, that it's not like he's got, a, he has a sort of an openly hostile media, more loathed than any president in history. That What it seems like from over here, at least, is that a significant number of people don't care and in fact, they find it appealing that he's treated. And, and in fact, there's something quite jarring about if you watch sort of CNN or MSNBC or read the New York Times and how Trump is described. And then you see him live in, you know, Florida or wherever he's appearing. And you think, well, this person just seems absolutely uh, uh, not oblivious to, but sort of fueled by that disdain. And he's right, risen above it. And I must say, even uh, uh, myself, as a person whose customary political affiliations would not lie in that direction, there is something attractive about uh, a figure that is, seems to be, uh, seems to have risen above narratives that I'd long regarded as corrupted prior to the Trump presidency, I felt, oh, like the mainstream media, they just support the government. They're one of the pillars of the establishment, all that kind of sort of ordinary stuff. So it seems to me that it's not that like that there there is a, a an absence of critique but that the, the the critique is the people don't care about even the kind of rational discourse that you're constructing or this collusion with the russians people it doesn't seem to impact people how, how do you deal with that well I, I think that that's true to the extent that each new revelation about donald trump is subsumed beneath a you know like a tsunami of new news products that are startling and upsetting that Donald Trump is produ producing. He's flooding the zone. You know, he's creating a deceitful matrix where each piece of information in the matrix of information is either misinformation or disinformation, or it's true, but it's somehow infected by our sense that the whole thing is disinformation. And in that environment, there's no question that an old adage that we get in the United States from a former House Speaker Tip O'Neill from Massachusetts, who said that all politics is local, gets transformed into all politics is emotional. And I do think that when the zone has been flooded with deceit, all politics is emotional. One of the things I wrote about with Donald Trump back in the summer of 2015, right when he announced, is that a lot of people thought that Trump supporters were simply angry and they were bringing a sort of postmodern dialectical lens to the conflict between Trump supporters and those who opposed Trump. Those who opposed Trump were angry and those who, uh, excuse me, those who supported Trump were angry and those who opposed Trump were somehow purely valiant. What I wrote in 2015 is that Trump supporters were actually a bit of a contradiction in the metamodern sense of juxtapositions sometimes being generative and attractive to us. They were simultaneously angry and optimistic. And I think a lot of people missed the optimism of Donald Trump's supporters because they didn't share that optimism or how it was framed. And so the fact that people are so drawn to him no matter what he does is not simply because they're angry, but it's because he represents to them the way that they hope life will be in the future, even if in, in my own sense and many others they're being conned, they are having an emotional response to this man's presence in our lives as someone who is constantly promising a, a better life. So yes, they're angry, they are optimistic, the zone is so flooded that, that what comes out of it fundamentally is just their own hope for the future. Um, you, you look at the people who go to these rallies, it's like going to a rock concert. 
And they're not necessarily even listening to what he's saying anymore because they've heard it all before. He, he's basically repeating himself, but it feels good to be at that rally. It feels mm. good for them to be looking forward to the future in a time when everything seems so endlessly deconstructed that mm. that eternal deconstruction can lead us to a place of crisis and a lack of hope. And so what we're looking for is hope and they find hope in Donald Trump from an emotional standpoint, if not a logical one. In a way, that's kind of front and center, even in the most visible maxim of make America great again. That's a, an optimistic, albeit nostalgic message that uh, inspires both of the emotional states that you've alluded to, a kind of hope, but also an anger that these forces have undone the greatness of America that we actually fortunately can make great again. That's a... Yeah, that's a, an interesting analysis. Do you feel then, it seems to, to me, Seth, that a lot of the conditions that you're describing uh, do not are not reliant on Trump for, the, for their perpetuation. That If you remove Trump and replace him even with Biden, there were, the, the, the phenomena that you're describing are so uh, ubiquitous that they how would they not continue? Because well, what is it other than, as you said, he wants the same kind of presence in our lives that smartphones and screens have and I like that and you're, you're right he does have a like that sort of showmanship and uh, sort of psychopathic mutability that's, that lends itself to the, the conditions you're describing but isn't this something that's sort of far bigger than Trump of which he is just the most uh, obvious symptom absolutely uh, Trumpism will endure no matter what happens to Donald Trump uh, politically personally uh, or in any sense uh, the reason that Trumpism will endure is that there is a hunger in the United States, I think particularly on the political right, for a return to meta-narratives that you can trust in and rely on and feel inspired by and that give you hope uh, when you wake up in the morning. We certainly are in a period where, and I don't want to get too theoretical here, but you know, postmodernism as a cultural paradigm that describes our logic and our structure of feeling, you know, what, what we say in cultural theory, our system of logic and our structure of feeling has for many, many decades been described with the term postmodernism. We endlessly deconstruct things. We put uh, various sort of arguments that we have on a dialectic where two poles battle it out until one is successful. We ultimately uh, and, and consistently refer to truth as contingent in some way. Eventually, that becomes enervating. That causes mm. us to lose hope. It causes us to feel that we will be deconstructing eternally and that we will be in crisis eternally. So there is a hunger for a return to meta narratives. Now, the, the difference between me, let's say, and someone like Jordan Peterson is that Jordan Peterson is what I would regard as a neo-modernist, which simply means that he wants to return to old and in many cases discarded and what should be inert meta narratives from 100 years ago or even well before that. What a metamodernist like me wants to see is a return to meta-narratives with an understanding of everything that we learned during the far too long, far too extended postmodern period of roughly 70 years. We need to have faith in meta-narratives, in other words, even when we know that they're flawed. 
but we do need to know that they're flawed. We have to have a certain informed naivete about how we wake up in the morning, where we know that deconstruction happened. We know that we were in crisis, but we also know that we need to get up in the morning and, and soldier on anyway, and that our meta-narratives will be imperfect, but they will inspire us. One of the uh, maxims that is often associated with meta-modernism is that we need a romantic response to crisis. Donald Trump, in the darkest possible sense, is selling a romantic response to crisis. What we need, I would suggest, on the political left in America is a romantic response to crisis that is a, the, the light version of what Donald Trump is selling as a very, very dark vision in the, in the view of most of us. I mean, he talked about American carnage during his inaugural speech. We need an alternative to the romantic response to crisis that he's selling. You're so clever. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> um, yes, you, we do need that. Now, where's that going to come from, Seth? Because even by your own um, methods, it, it it sounds like that you you're, that you know you have to create this grid of narratives and they, these reliable nodes and data points. That's sort of almost hyper rational. How do we enter into this new mythos, this new state, this new faith, this new romanticism, jaded, jarred, bruised as we are? How do we revive this kind of a, a, a new uh, perspective that uh, post Donald Trump's uh, like American car? How do we revivify optimism without it tending towards those uh, the dead sort of modernist narratives of sort of fascism, uh, ethno-nationalism, etc.? Well, I think one of the problems with the way that Donald Trump is approaching it is he wants the same uh, insipid solution for every field, which is make America great again, trust in me. Uh, as you said, it's a return to neo-modernist, uh, return to modernist narratives like fascism and authoritarianism and so on. It, with metamodernism, what we're imagining is that this cultural paradigm plays out differently in each field. So there's metamodern architecture, there's metamodern music, there's metamodern stand-up comedy, and it's going to look different in each genre because the conventions that you are trying to both subvert and extend in each of the genres is different. So let's say journalism. In journalism, metamodernism takes the form of metajournalism in the following sense. We say, okay, journalism is at a point of collapse in many respects. People don't trust it anymore. Uh, we have a problem with items that are sort of outside journalism, but part of the conversation ultimately like fake news. How do we respond knowing that we are in a deconstructed journalistic sphere where people have less trust? Well, you, you make a go of it, and you make a go of it in a romantic and perhaps even quixotic way by saying, I'm going to read 12,000 sources from, and I'm going to use the internet to help me do this, from around the world going back decades, and I'm going to show that we actually have so much great investigative journalism that the idea of turning to fake news the idea of not trusting a single news outlet when someone can now in the digital age create a network of thousands of news outlets is really just beside the point. Um, so so meta-journalism is a romantic, romantic response to crisis. But, you know, in architecture, people putting gardens atop roofs in major cities, that's a romantic response to crisis. Notice that in that situation, you're not saying, as you might in a postmodern dialectic, well, either we tear down the building or we say, screw it, let's just burn the environment until there's nothing left. You say, well, we're going to keep the building 
because people live there and we know we can't tear all the buildings down, but we're going to put gardens everywhere that we can, including on the buildings. That's how metamod one example of how metamodernism shows up in architecture. But again, it shows up in every genre. So the answer to your question is, depends on the genre, depends on the form of communication being used, depends on the sphere of professional activity we're talking about. Well, that in itself would be eschewing postmodernism, which would, of course, challenge the taxonomies in themselves, even that these genres exist independently of one another. If you sort of think of it in sort of more simplistic historical forms like Baroque, the music was Baroque, the architecture was Baroque, you know, like the idea that there will be different streams and different expressions, and we can widely understand Baroque to be sort of, yeah, like, I don't know, ornamental, fluid, florid, like, uh, like the idea that there will be different approaches in meta-modernism depending on the genre that it was applied to now i have a few questions here mate one is where the hell are we getting like because this is what i return to is like if you really want to challenge the uh sort of the some of these like you know like dear marianne williamson said you're not going to be able to uh, overcome these sort of she said something like dark satanic forces with your technocratic bureaucratic clap track democrat language you know like i my personal disappointment and uh condemnation seems like a hard word to use but like falls more on the left than on the right because in a sense the right is gone all punk and rogue and become mobilized and look like they're having real fun and expressing themselves over there and like whereas the left has become kind of i don't know like bereft of any real purpose and meaning no doubt as a result of this constant deconstructivism that you have described it seems to me that those ideas are sort of foreclosed i.e sort of so, like you almost have to go back to the uh yeah, sort of english origins of socialism as opposed to the sort of european origins and look at this the role of say methodism uh like sort of that that christian milieu uh, in the establishment of socialism to to revivify the left i.e does there need to be a spiritual component to any political alternative even if that spiritualism is not theological but is could be sort of sort of personal and if you're saying that we're gonna to have to enter into this with the kind of naivety who where do we look do we look at in the way that indigenous societies organize and say see if we can mobilize those ideas in a post uh, urban setting you know like a, an example the architectural example of growing things in cities could cities be run in different municipalities could power be shared differently what kind of ideas and where are we getting the energy the sort of what's the source in this in this sort of dissipated gray and insipid time that that, that that's so sort of all-consuming that a figure like trump it becomes attractive just almost because of his priapism well, I'd look at it this way. Um, we have nothing left to lose. You know, many people are awakening this morning on the left and on the right without any hope whatsoever that things will improve. Uh, Metamodernism suggests that it's time for a new sincerity. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, the sort of rebelliousness that we see on the right right now in the United States and perhaps elsewhere is incredibly retrograde. It is that sort of punk rebelliousness that determines that the only way to prove that you are actually rebelling is to do something shocking and to in some way be what some people would consider distasteful. Well, we already did that in the 1970s in the United States with punk rock, literally, right? David Foster Wallace, a novelist who's considered a proto-metamodernist, said that the new rebels, the rebels of the uh, the era that we're in now, the metamodern era, not that he used the term at the time, would be those people who are willing to be snickered at 
willing to be laughed at, willing to be considered too naive and too simple and uncool, right? And I'll, you're talking to someone right now, Russell, who is incredibly uncool and who gets laughed at all the time. And that's part of the rebellion. I know that. I know that people, you know, look at me and say, this guy's writing 500 tweet threads on Twitter. What does he think he's doing? Where does he think he is that anyone wants to read him write 500 tweets in a row on Twitter? I am deliberately misusing the platform. I know that I'm doing it. I am upsetting people by doing it. I know that I'm doing it. But I'm not trying to be shocking in a punkish way. I'm trying to have a romantic response to crisis, which says, look how naively hopeful this guy is that we can make sense of this world, even though he fully understands because he lived through postmodernism with everyone else, how ridiculous what he's doing seems to be. I agree with what David Foster Wallace said 25 years ago. The rebels of today are willing to be laughed at, snickered at, considered uncool. The Milo Yiannopoulos of the world who say, I'm going to be punkish and I'm going to shock you, you know, excuse my language, but that's bullshit 40 years ago rebellion. And it's really old hat. It's incredibly postmodern and it's boring. It's boring because, you know, postmodernists have been shocking people with their you know, crazy statements about Jews, if you want to use Milo Yiannopoulos as an example, for 100 years. Um, that's why postmodernism, out, you know, outstayed its welcome. So the answer is a new sincerity. The answer is hope. And the answer is stop worrying about whether people laugh at you on the Internet. Dembaya, who is 24 today, uh, like I saw her frame her face thusly in a kind of, oh, way. As in, so that's, I say, a very warm and I would hope welcome <laughs> response there from uh, the, the youth of today present beyond the window. Um, mate, uh, see this thing about the right going punk. I feel like it's, just, in a sense, an understandable response it, 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 dualistically even to the what I would regard as the sort of conservatism of new liberalism i.e. that it's become about let's not worry too much about dealing with this dreadful global poverty and ecological meltdown let's concern ourselves with the real issue gestures about the words we use that's a if we can really just drill down into the modern vocabulary we can now so like you know because that's a kind of in a sense a sort of an ultra individualistic conservative attitude we don't want any real change but we recognize it's necessary to be polite and make um sort of uh what do I want to say, concessions to various minority, inverted commas, interests, that, that for me has afforded the right, this sort of punk territory, which was always regarded as a sort of a alternative and I would say leftist uh, trope. The fact that it's been so easily dislocated makes me query it. Well, it's, it's understandable, Russell, but it is at the same time still just reactionary. It's simply responding to what you're seeing uh, among the neoliberals. What I'm suggesting is that true rebellion is forging a path forward. Uh, true rebellion in, in every art form, for instance, has been showing us how we move forward into the future. Uh, what I worry about, among many other things, with the alt-right is that, yeah, they found a really um, successful response to the excesses of the left that they can sell to conservatives because conservatives are generally retrograde in how they understand the concept of progress. That's why they're called conservatives. But as someone who's a progressive, my job is to not be reactionary to anything, but to try to think about how do we actually forge a path forward. So that's why I say that the sort of rebelliousness that you see on the alt-right, which I've actually studied for years and written about, is uninteresting to me 
uh, even I've been on 4chan, 8chan. I've, I've, I can't tell you how much time I've spent studying the response of the right to neoliberalism, to the excesses of the new left. But ultimately what I've concluded, and I think a lot of metamodernists have, is it's not going to make anyone happier. It's not going to make anyone more hopeful. It's not going to show a path forward to anyone. It's simply going to be an effective response to the present. Well, who's thinking about the future? Who's showing us a path for the next 50 years? It's not Milo Yiannopoulos, you know, owning the libs or, or whoever, you know, obviously Jack Posobiec and all these other people they have now who are owning the libs. That's just um, that's just transient pleasure. It's not about the future. Don't you feel that perhaps the sort of the not contempt, but say disdain with which you regard some of the uh, people that you are citing could be just as easily extended to the libs that they are themselves critiquing because neither party are particularly contributing to a genuine, genuinely progressive movement. To your point about Foster Wallace too, who, who I adore and I, I I identify I think that you've correctly diagnosed that he was uh, dissatisfied and cynical about the literary greats that preceded him and was trying to sort of cultivate a new optimism a new naivety a new innocence I find it difficult to um, di- uh, to disentangle that from a, a kind of uh, spiritual idealism a kind of and by which I mean a belief in love a belief in connection a respect for different people's right to live differently but a sort of faith in the universal if you think of perhaps perhaps the defining idea of postmodernism, there is no universal there are only a set of various contingencies there are individuals any attempt to attain a university is a, a universal is a power play to say there is a oneness that can be striven for or strove for you know it's like so so like doesn't isn't uh, where are we getting the impetus the energy and my own um, conclusion, which is not based on analysis of any data and reading 12,000 articles and hanging out on 4chan, but is, uh, is achieved by sitting in silence and wondering, is come, comes from the, uh, the, a kind of transcendent idea of what it is to be human and how to mobilize love in the creation of new systems. So here's what I would say. I, I think that hope ultimately comes from where we are now. It it, it is derived from how we live on a daily basis and how we see the world. We don't suddenly make a great leap from feeling incredibly conflicted about the world today to pure love. Um, (laughs) I I think that's that's too much of a jump to make. And I think that's the sort of neo-modernism that even if though it's well-directed and well-intended, and I wish we could do that, just go straight from where we are now to pure love. But as you said, what would be the impetus? And so the the bridge, the bridge that gets us from where we are to where we want to be is accepting everything about where we are and finding in it both the love and the turmoil and the tragedy, right? So for instance, I'll just go back to meta-journalism as an example. Um, No subgenre of journalism shows more love, love for great investigative reporting of the conventional sense than meta-journalism. Because I have to read thousands of articles from around the world going back decades, and I have to work with them as the building blocks of my trade. I have to love what these investigative reporters are doing. And in the acknowledgments to my book, I thank them and I say, you are what makes meta-journalism possible. At the same time, 
I wouldn't be a meta journalist unless on some level I wanted to tear down the entire structure of how we transfer information in the digital age. But both things are present at the same time. So that's why we don't just say that, uh, and I want to be really clear on this, we don't just say that metamodernism is, is about naivete. It's about informed naivete. We don't just say it's about optimism. It's about optimism juxtaposed with cynicism. We say that it is sincerity and irony in the same place at the same time. And that's what brings people along the path. Because you say, look, you're feeling really cynical right now because of deconstruction, the postmodern age, and just the realities of our time. I hear that. Use that, but also use the love you feel, the optimism. That's why Trump has been so successful. He harnessed the anger of his follows, followers, but also their optimism. If he had only appealed to their anger, or if he had only sold them uh, pure love or something similar to that, it wouldn't have worked because that's there's no bridge from where they are today to where he wants to get them to. So I think what I would say, Russell, is let's get there. Let's get to pure love. Let's get to transcendence and spiritualism. But let's figure out what the bridge is that gets us to that point. Because if we don't, we're going to have exactly the problem you keep repeating, which is how do you get people from here to there? And the answer is you don't without metamodernism. Hmm. And metamodernism, I suppose you're saying, is a an, optimi an optimistic approach founded upon the understanding of where we are now. Is that a sort of a simple enough description of it? Yes. How do you feel over there then with n November uh, sort of lurking forever on your horizon? What do you think is going to happen, mate? Well, I mean, I think it would be pretty silly to try to project anything that's going to happen in American politics right now. The one thing I would say is that I believe it is closer than many people realize I worry that there are some on the left, particularly the, the neoliberal left that we've been talking about. I mean, I just saw James Carville, the longtime political strategist for the Democrats on CNN, saying that he's got his bottle of champagne ready for November 3rd and that he believes the election will be called uh, by 1030 p.m. I think that's asinine. I think it's dangerous. I think it's the sort of thing you hear from people who don't understand the phenomena the phenomenon of, of Donald Trump and Trumpism. They don't understand how powerful and alluring it is to so many people for the reasons that we've been talking about. So I don't know what's going to happen. I think it'll be close. I think no matter what happens, we're going to have litigation. We're going to be counting ballots for a very long time. Uh, I think the nation's going to be in crisis during the transition period, no matter who wins. And as we already said, even if Joe Biden wins and is inaugurated on January 20th, 2021, we are going to be a country which is having a massive clash of, I would suggest, cultural paradigms. Now, ironically, I think we have the same cultural paradigm iterating itself in a different way, a different presentation on both the alt-right and in neoliberalism, and, and that's a sort of postmodernism. The question is, how does America get out of this dialectic, these two poles just battling each other until one destroys the other, which ultimately, by the way, would destroy America, and there has to be some sort of an answer. Anyone who thinks this is going to be uh, anything but a close election, who thinks the transition period is going to be anything but completely chaotic, and who thinks that even a Biden administration would be anything but a, a continued um, evisceration of our sense of any kind of national unity is, I think, really being naive and not in the informed way, but in the regular way.
Yes. What do you think that uh, in the regular, not this new naivety that we're trying to cultivate, it's the, uh, the traditional naivety we're trying to get rid of. Um, do, you, do you feel like that the Democratic Party is in itself in crisis? And how do you think they arrived at Joe Biden? I know that, you know, through various electoral procedures, but why would they have not avoided that kind of candidate if they were serious about victory? Uh if, if it isn't in crisis, it should be in crisis, by which I mean to say it is in crisis, but I don't think it recognizes that it's in crisis. Um, I mean, obviously, I think it's important to say that Joe Biden is in an entirely different universe of human being and politician and public figure than Donald Trump. There's no comparison between the two of them in that respect. But I think Joe Biden even has acknowledged that he's not any sort of long-term solution to the future of the Democratic Party. And I do worry that there are elements within the Democratic Party who may consider themselves the future of the Democratic Party who are simply part of this really unhealthy dialectic with the alt-right and that that will continue to take us down the road that we've been down. Uh, I don't yet see the emergence within the Democratic Party of those who really have found a solution for how to take us to the next stage of American history, how to not bring us together in a sort of um, all singing and chanting songs together sort of way, but in the sense of being able to just function and not be dysfunctional. So yes, the Democratic Party's in crisis. The Republican Party doesn't really exist anymore, frankly. It's just Trump's party. Uh, it's a cult of personality. It, of course, then is in crisis. And uh, I don't think the solution is actually going to come through politics. I don't think the solution is going to come through politicians. I think there's going to have to be a grassroots understanding that in the digital age, there has to be a new cultural paradigm. There has to be a new system of logic, a new structure of feeling, or we are all of us on the left and the right going to wake up every day depressed and angry and feeling like the future will be darker than the past. Could this radical process of self-inventory include challenging the assumed paradigms right down to the level of what a nation is and the necessity for a nation of 300 million people in the digital age and the even the f plausibility of maintaining that in such an uh, a, a polarised time. Is it possible that we should start to consider whether or not you can have United Kingdom, United States of States of America, whether you should start to look at what is the advantage of centralization in this current condition? Yeah, I think the theory is that it is possible uh, in this age, in the digital age, with the foundational metaphor of the network to simultaneously discard things and retain them. I reject the idea that you have to choose that either we get rid of national boundaries altogether or we have uh, isolationism. I, I think that there are frameworks that can be employed that both accept that nations have meaning as a concept and also understand the ways in which it's a little bit silly uh, in this age of interconnectivity and internationalization of culture and communication, um, putting aside politics, to treat countries as fully discrete. Uh, I, I think for every question that we tackle now, we have to see how it is simultaneously two things at once. Uh, one of the sort of adages for metamodernism is the phrase both and, that you can have a situation that is both of two extremes simultaneously. 
And in being both of those extremes simultaneously, you've become something new, the and, the additional thing that we are not currently. Whereas if we stay on the dialectic, if we stay on the either or structure, either we do this or we do that, uh, we're just going to keep fighting in perpetuity until everything collapses. We have to find, and I'm not talking, by the way, about mediation or negotiation or meeting in the middle. I'm actually suggesting that when your foundational metaphor is the network, you can simultaneously be at one pole of a spectrum and at the same time be at the other end of the spectrum because four-dimensional space is not really what we're working with anymore. Um, I write a lot about thinking in five dimensions and thinking in six dimensions, even thinking in seven dimensions, because the old dialectic of two-dimensional thinking is, is not just antiquated, it's irrelevant, it's unhelpful, and it's no longer phenomenologically accurate. If you look at most of the great art, most of the great ideas, they are a juxtaposition of opposites, not a choosing from between the two of them. And so, uh, yes, I think we're going to have a new attitude towards national boundaries. And that new attitude will simultaneously be a hardening of how we think about nations and an eradication of how we think about nations. I understand that seems too simple, but think about green architecture, right? Green architecture doesn't say burn down the buildings and build a garden. It says the garden and the building will be in the same place. They will coexist together with neither being destroyed, neither being negotiated out of existence. Mm. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, of course, yeah. and the spiritual idea of being able to hold two opposing ideas right. simultaneously and the quantum physical idea yes. of a super state of uh, possibilities continually or like, that could realize themselves, you know, regardless of any perceived contradiction. You're exactly right. I've, 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 written so. about, I've written about all of those things because they're all connected to the paradigm we're talking about. All Physics, religion, spirituality, all of those concepts already exist and they appeal to a lot of people. And I think they're there to be um, beneficially harvested to inspire people. In a sense, the organs for the revolution, should we call it, are already present in the current system. How could whatever's going to evolve from our present conditions not be present, latent somehow within it? It would have to be by definition. But the idea of something becoming truly local and global, some new confederacy of alliances does require, uh, 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 obviously, a lot of contemplation. Do you, so you consider your, your role to be the construction of the analytic rather than the provision of the vision? Well, I don't, I don't know exactly what my role I mean, is. I, and I say well, that... Well, you better think about it, Seth, Well, no, no, no. Because... no. <laughs> let me tell you what I mean. No, let me tell you what I mean by that, Russell. So I teach um, digital communications at University of New Hampshire. And I teach digital communications in the following way. I teach it inductively. What I teach students is that your public communications practice arises inductively from everything that you are meaning your triumphs, your traumas, your obsessions, your passions, your knowledge bases, your skill sets, your temperament, your personality, everything must be carried forward from experience to experience, memory to memory. You know, I've worked in many different fields. Every field I've worked in, I've taken my skills, my knowledge bases, uh, my experiences, my memories, my relationships from that field. I've carried it forward to build a way of 
interacting with the world. So when you say, what is your role? And I say, I don't know. What I mean is I'm building it on a daily basis. I don't work deductively from an assumption of how I fit into the scheme of things. I just try to every day communicate in a way consistent with what we call in, in theory, the poetics of my communications practice. Yeah, like the Tao, you are the way as you are walking the way. I'm not familiar enough with that to say whether it's right or not, but if you say it is, let's go with it. If you think you're any less familiar with the Tao than I am, <laughs> then I've somehow hoodwinked you in this 45-minute chat. I've just exhausted my knowledge by saying that thing. Tell us a bit more about yourself then. You're actually a, a, a professor or a teacher in New Hampshire, and what's your normal, as I say, your, or your domestic life like? What, what the hell's going on? Do you sit around? Do you meditate? Have you got any time to do anything else when you're reading 12,000 data nodes a minute? Well, so I've got I've got a pretty strange, you know, background. I practiced law as a criminal attorney for many years. Uh, and then I started. I know I'm, I'm unfortunately I'm an attorney, though. You know, I'm a lapsed attorney. Uh, you know, I'm still an attorney, but I don't practice. I published many books of poetry. I've been involved in publishing for a long time. I'm actually the series editor for Best American Experimental Writing uh, still today. Uh, obviously, I write the, the proof series and I'm involved with meta-journalism. So my teaching practice is, is unusual in a way that reflects everything I've just discussed. Many professors teach in one subject and perhaps even very narrowly within a subject. They'll say, well, I teach 18th century poetry. That would be very conventional for an academic. I, I teach in about 12 to 15 different subject areas because that's how I've lived my life and that's my background in terms of my terminal degrees, in terms of the uh, areas that I've, I've practiced in and still practice in today, in terms of my teaching practice being inductive. So I teach post-internet cultural theory, I teach digital journalism, I teach pre-law, I teach every genre of creative writing, I teach technical writing, I teach literature, I teach digital communications. I'm a very unusual sort of teacher uh, who loves teaching, but also believes, as you've indicated before, that some of the old silos of, of various departments that have existed in the academy are increasingly irrelevant. What I mostly want to do is participate in a way that I hope is generative in public discourse. I mean, I know that that's something you can relate to, right? You, you, we want to participate in a way that we hope is helpful, but also that draws from everything we are rather than pigeonholing us into one category or another. Sorry, I'm not trying to compare myself to you, but I just know that, that you have a similar interest in participating in that way. Oh, yeah. What I don't have is the ability to teach in 20 subjects <laughs> to, a, <laughs> to a university level. Um, how the hell have you created that? What was you like when you were 12? Uh, when I was 12, let's see, I was trying to write a novel and I decided, <laughs> uh, here's the other thing that really a lot of people who follow my Twitter feed will think is entirely appropriate. When I was 12, I was trying to create a, a role-playing game that would turn all of life into a role-playing game where you could attach numbers and odds to basically everything that happens in life. And I even submitted it to, a to a role-playing game publisher who wrote me a very nice note and I'm sure thought that I was going to have a very dark future uh, when, they, <laughs> when they received that submission. But no, I've always, I've always been weird. Uh, but again, not weird in, in the cool sort of rebellious way that I know resonates, let's say, on the alt-right, but I've just been idiosyncratic in the literal sense of that word. Um, I, I don't really fit in and I've just had to come to accept that. And it, it comes with the snickering and it comes with people thinking I don't understand Twitter when in fact I, I teach post-internet cultural theory. So I came on Twitter to misuse it deliberately. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a weirdo, Russell. 
Yes, yes, I, I, I identify. Um, well, how do you think then that Trump's a Twitter genius? Uh, no, I don't think that Donald Trump is a genius uh, in any respect, unless it's uh, losing money. I mean, he's the least successful businessman in American history, according to his tax records. Uh, he, he may, on the other hand, be one of the most surprisingly successful politicians in American history. But I think it's his pathologies that drive him rather than his skill sets or his knowledge bases. I think anything he does, he is fundamentally doing instinctively. Uh, after decades and decades of the American system rewarding him in various ways, the, the financial system, the legal system, the political system, our media system, our cultural system, all reward Donald Trump's innate pathologies and can make him look like a genius when, in fact, I think he's pretty much stumbling his way through. And increasingly, I'll say a lot of what he does really makes for bad television and bad pageantry. So I think he's he's become enervated by being president and he's he's not even instinctively as effective at the things he used to be effective at at least superficially in 2020 as he was, you know, 5 years ago. If as you say that none of the things that he is doing are calculated but are just an expression of his pathology that's more terrifying still because it means that he is sort of in a sense a, a redundant expression of a systemic problem as opposed to a, an active agent and it's difficult to think how that could ever be uh, 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 remedied without pretty radical change Seth. You're exactly right. Um, you know, so, for instance, he's pathologically corrupt, but his corruption runs exactly in the direction of the corruption of our political, legal and financial systems. So, for instance, he's publicly come out and said that the uh, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which prohibits U.S. businessmen and women from bribing corrupt foreign officials, should be repealed because it's a terrible law. I mean, he openly said, I should be able to bribe people. Um, now, why didn't that collapse his reputation as a businessman? Why didn't it make impossible a political career? Well, because fundamentally, apparently, inherent in our financial and cultural and communication systems and political systems in the U.S. is a certain sense that you should be able to get ahead however you can get ahead. And that includes mm. bribery. So w when I say that he is instinctive or pathological... I don't mean to say you too as a ringtone. Is that what that was? I don't. I don't even know. It's probably the default one. I don't really think about it. But you uh, mad savant. <laughs> but but I but I think that instinctively, when I say that he's pathologically corrupt, uh, I don't mean to suggest that he isn't um, acting like a mob boss sometimes. That he isn't acting as a, a, a malefactor in American politics or business. It's just that his instincts run in the direction of existing pathways that have been carved into our system over decades and that's that's what we see with him well then should we stop fetishizing our condemnation of trump and instead bring our attention to the problems of which he is an expression because i take your critique to be accurate and and what that that makes me feel optimistic because it makes me feel that the reason that trump became president remains president and may continue to be president 
is because in in the landscape he was present he, the, the landscape he appeared in he was the most obvious choice that for all the talk of like you know these uh, this pathology and these failings up against uh, Hillary and her emails and that type of politician those career politicians that that they, they don't stand a chance they don't stand a chance against this figure that you know that I think perhaps what people are intuiting whether it's from the perspective of anger or optimism as you have diagnosed is you know, because patho- you know, w- d- separate pathology from authenticity for me. You know, that's what that you know that this is authentic. This is not a calculation. This is you know, even where it's a performance, is a performance coming from a Marlon Brando like animus rather than the sort of nitpickety sort of forensic manipulation of the, the you know sort of post Clinton Democrat party which like I feel like the this surge of optimism and rage uh, can sort of overwhelms disregards and is magnetized toward in the Trump of our man there well I think you're you're exactly right that Donald Trump is a symptom not the cause but you know having said that if you have a malignant cyst you still remove the malignant cyst and that's what Donald Trump is. You know, he has to be removed from office. He is malignant. He is dangerous, but he's not the cause. Yeah. I, and if we're not going to stop eating red meat and smoking fags and drinking too much, then, you know, we might as well not bother removing the malignancy. <laughs> unless we're going to say, right, we're going to make fundamental changes. Right. So that means no Trump, no Biden, none of any of you lot. This game is over. <laughs> I'm well, sorry that I inadvertently that looked like a fascistic move, but that was just enthusiasm. Well, you know, I mean, honestly, in, in 2016, in the spring of 2016, I was a Bernie Sanders supporter um, for, for two reasons. Number one, I do think he was the closest to presenting a, a way forward that was consistent with what we've been talking about. Uh, Bernie Sanders is a sort of a metamodern figure on the light side of that equation, whereas Donald Trump is the darker end of the equation. But the second reason that I supported Bernie Sanders is that I believed Hillary Clinton would lose to him because mm. she represented a paradigm that is not the current dominant cultural paradigm. And that, that turned out to be correct. But just going back to Donald Trump, I, I want to underscore that when we say he's pathological, what that means is that he's simultaneously cynical and sincere. We forget that Donald Trump quite- You said that's the answer. Well, that is metamodern. It doesn't mean that it's the answer. Metamodernism is a cultural paradigm as vast as postmodernism, right? So to the extreme <laughs> extent that postmodernism has dangerous manifestations and it has others that are really generative and have created great art and music and so on. Anyway, so Donald Trump sometimes is incredibly earnest and candid about who he is. He's actually said, I'm always about the money. I just want to get more money. He says that openly and that appeals to people, right? So that's why I say that he's a metamodern figure of a very destructive sort is that he's combining insincerity and sincerity. He's instinctively insincere. He lied, he's lied 25,000 times in office, but he will frequently be bracingly candid. And that's so alluring to people because it's consistent with our experience, for instance, of the internet. People find themselves drawn to the metamodern paradigm, no matter how it is manifested, unfortunately, even if it's in the person of a con man like Donald Trump, who is metamodern, I should be clear, only pathologically and instinctively, not through any, he's not read theory, let's put it that way. <laughs> he's teach like, whilst I agree with your analysis that he is not a positive thinker, headline um like that like that, that uh, he is teaching us something very very positive something in, an important lesson is being taught because i think in a sense he's 
showing us where the solution is by all that he is demonstrating. So not in a sort of in in a binary way, in a sort of a, a juxtaposed way, as you have as you have described. It's not like it's like it requires some shadow. I think of him as a shadow figure. I think of him as an expression of unconsciousness. Um, but given that it's, it's almost like the preconditioning created him i mean i suppose that's an obvious thing in a way and that's why i was making that point about george w and even though obama on a sort of like on a personal level just seemed like a charming and great person that the obama administration was teeing this up and i'm sure there are sort of pretty obvious responses to obama because of you know demographic type reasons but but also i think it's sort of in a way for a lot of people cemented the cynicism around politics the obama administration i watched and i was going to talk to steve Bannon because I'm kind of down with having conversations with people that I sort of you know um, uh, uh, opposed to um, but like I saw him once at the Oxford Union give this unbelievable talk Seth like where for the first 20 minutes he didn't say a thing that you could disagree with he talked about the Wall Street crash he talked about the consequences of it he talked about how that what how what that told us about corruption etc he said during this talk he said um you know the, the, he goes, we're, we now know that populism is the next movement. All that we're discussing is, it, is, is it going to be right-wing populism or left-wing populism? This was before the failure of Corbyn's Labour Party in the last election in this country and perhaps before the Democratic primaries and yeah, the last round of stuff in your system. You know, and like uh, it seems like that's, you know, the bias is heading that way but that the, the response to trump can't be here's more of what we were doing immediately before trump you know, like you say that's going to be taking it further in that direction well i would say this about steve bannon um steve bannon does a very good job of making it seem like he has answers he's actually just reading symptoms and he's working under the conventional will to power which simply is looking for an antidote to whatever is currently uh, the, the dominant political paradigm that he opposes. There is no long-term future in anything suggested by Steve Bannon. He is providing the right with a prescription for how they might win over the next five to 10 years. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a way forward. I mean, frankly, back in 2016, you talk about Donald Trump pointing us toward an alternative. I really felt the metamodern alternative Donald Trump was pointing us toward was Bernie Sanders, who was, if you look at him objectively, right, not really charismatic, old, disheveled from a, a worldview, a, a socialist worldview that's very sort of modernist. It's sort of from 70 years ago. And yet what happened? He produced a million memes. He was considered lovable and engaging, even as he repeated himself over and over in every speech. Young people loved him because he was a contradiction in terms, in a very alluring and engaging way. But he was also pointing toward a way forward. Now, I don't think Bernie Sanders was a 20-year a way forward. I thought of him in 2016 as a four-year way forward. A 20 or 30-year way forward requires a paradigm shift. So I'd say this, you can talk to Steve Bannon for a long time. He, he's noting a lot of symptoms accurately. He's diagnosing some things correctly. But if you try to get Steve Bannon to talk about how this world is a hopeful place, how it is a place that functions generatively, that people wake up almost universally hopeful 50 years from now, that man will go silent because he has nothing to offer paradigmatically. He can only work with symptoms. He can only work as a reactionary. And I find that personally, I find it boring and I find it a waste of my time on earth to focus on things that are five-year solutions rather than hundred-year visions. 
Uh, Steve Bannon's hundred year vision to the extent it exists is similar to like Sauron's in, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings. It's a dark vision that leads to no hope for hardly anyone. Which isn't a good campaign poster. No, it's not. It's not. Dark vision. No hope for no one. Uh, Seth, it's so lovely speaking with you. You're such a brilliant man. I'm so grateful to you for your time. I hope we get to speak more. What I feel like talking to you is that in a sense, the um, the sort of dark matter emanating from the current administration is sort of we can grope in its shadow what the solution might be that you need a kind of uh, uh, oddly sort of legitimate polar opposite and one of the things I find frustrating while sort of reading about participating critiquing uh, the, the current political space is like well why are we quarreling so vociferously about such a narrow bandwidth of alternatives i know you said oh like you know joe biden is a sort of a moral paramour compared to donald trump but that worries me that that's the that's the extent of the you know that for me is a, a significant contribution to the state of crisis we find ourselves in and it seems that what needs to emerge is a, as you say legitimate grassroots global alternative like why are we constricted by these imaginary boundaries why why can't there be a global confederacy why can't communities all over the world opt out and say we belong to a new globe a second globe a new technology as you say with the architectural example that you've been using we will grow our alternative society uh, upon the ruins of the last one yes we need a paradigm shift and the way that you know a paradigm shift has happened is when you're looking at something and you say, I don't even know what I'm looking at. Is that politics? That doesn't even look like politics. When Walt Whitman started writing poetry in America in the 19th century without using rhyme and meter, and he's one of my favorite poets, they said this isn't even poetry. That's how you know there's a paradigm shift when you don't even recognize it as the thing that it aims to be. So no, Joe Biden is not the paradigm shift. I don't think Kamala Harris is the paradigm shift, though I'm voting for, I already voted for Biden and Harris. The paradigm shift will come when all of America looks at what's happening in politics and says, we don't un even understand what's happening. To an extent that's occurred with Donald Trump, but it's dark and destructive. The alternative to that will be some other answer that just doesn't look like anything we've seen before. And that's what I'm waiting for. Let's march in glorious unison down that road less travelled together, Seth. Let's do it. <laughs> it's so beautiful to talk to you, mate. You're so brilliant and smart. Thank you. Thank you for talking with me, Russell. I had a lot of fun. Let's stay. We've got each other's emails. We can continue to chat. Absolutely. Is your book out? Shall I post myself reading it like this? Like looking at it like, whoa, this is opening me, <laughs> my mind up. 12,000 data points in here. Not a page wasted. Uh, it, it is out. It is out. It came out in September. But, you know, you, you do whatever you want. I, whatever you want to do is fun. Thank you for your passion and your uh, brilliant ability to convey ideas and your vocabulary, all of it. I've got a slight headache. <laughs> I really I really appreciate the conversation. And honestly, I appreciate the whole podcast you're doing. I think you should talk to Steve Bannon. It's wonderful. Talk, talk, the fact that you talk with everyone is inspiring. I think it's great. Thanks, mate. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, Cheers, take care. Seth. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with, uh, well, it says here, Carlo Rivelli, Jen. So is that, you want to stick with what? that? Yeah. Yep, Carlo Rivelli. Not no, Seth no, no. Abramson. It doesn't matter. I can just say the word Seth Abramson, not Carla Rivelli, who is coming up soon. So if you enjoy Carla Rivelli, quantum physicist, quantum theorist, storyteller, and one could argue atheist saint, yeah, yeah, then, uh, you know, 
do. He's coming up soon. Let me know what you thought of this episode with the wonderful Seth Abramson. He's obviously on Twitter, as he said, deconstructing the form even as he sincerely uses it, being a metamodernist. That's what we all learned a lot about today, didn't we? You can tag me on Instagram at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with a hashtag under the skin, knowing that I respond to five tweets, five Insta posts, five YouTube comments, five Facebook posts every single day. Except for weekends, when I'm, you know, just doing other stuff. Thanks for uh, to Luminary. Thanks for the people that worked on this show. Demaya, happy birthday. Charlie, good work. I think that's every. I think that's everyone <laughs> now. I can't think of anyone. You right there, Jen? Yeah. What's troubling is looking your face. Looking your face. Just managing the old spit, are you? <laughs> Have a lovely time, all of you. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin, only from Luminary.